strong voices. We don't need to sugarcoat things, let's put it that way. We need to be real, we need to be honest. We're in trouble. And the only way that we're going to get through this is by working together. We have to get serious about closing the gap, and I don't think governments have been serious. We need the scientists to help us to reduce the emissions, and we need to get communities and people out on country and learning about the environment and reconnecting with landscapes again, just the way Aboriginal people have done for thousands of years. communities have had the solutions to end this injustice for 30 years. The governments have chosen to not prioritise saving black lives. Enough is enough. Strong voices on Karma Radio. Hey, good afternoon and welcome to Strong Voices. I'm Carl Dowling here with you once again coming to you from the Calm Radio Studios here on Arundel Country in Central Australia and broadcasting to all nations through Vast Channel 911. We're of course on Aitken FM at 100.5 here in Alice Springs and also coming to you via the Karma app and online at karma.com.au. Well, today is Friday. It's the 19th of November 2021. Coming up on Strong Voices today, we're going to be hearing about moves underway to ensure that First Nations peoples are at the forefront of the clean energy revolution. Also, research conducted by Miracle Babies Foundation reveals that 8 out of 10 families with premature baby uh, babies experience additional financial impacts on their families. Karma's uh, Jenny Hubert will be catching up with the co-founder of the Miracle Babies Foundation, Kylie Purcell. Also, Karma's Philippe Perez will be joining us a little bit later in the program with all the latest updates in the Territory's fight against COVID-19. But first, a peak Western Australian Aboriginal Heritage Lobby Group has described the tabling of the state's new Aboriginal Cultural Heritage Bill as a shocking betrayal of its people. Uh, Witty Nunderman uh, Clayton Lewis, a co-founder of the Community Action Group, Aboriginal Heritage Action Alliance, AHA, says overall the bill leaves Aboriginal cultural heritage vulnerable to destruction and allows the state to take greater control to manage the heritage sector. We think that the heritage legislation in Western Australia is more or less a vehicle for ongoing colonial extraction and I challenge the state premier here to deny that. I mean, Blind Freddie can see that it's all about kicking off processes to allow big mining in Western Australia, which is quite prevalent and uh, supports the country in uh, in a lot of ways, certainly in the Pilbara and the Kimberley, uh, the goldfields of Western Australia and the Midwest. But uh, heritage goes down to not only the resource sector and uh, extraction resources, uh, it's also any ground-disturbing activity where Aboriginal cultural heritage is destroyed. We did see the release of the Jukun report or inquiry report recently, which was quite damning. And this not only happens in Western Australia, but it's happening all over Australia. And basically, the uh, Aboriginal people in Western Australia are fed up. We're calling it out for what it is. We believe it's a racist piece of legislation entrenched to appease the mining sector, to access land, destroy Aboriginal cultural heritage and fill the pockets of mostly European countries and uh, people who own uh, big mining or have uh, shareholder investments. So uh, we're calling it out, and basically we've had enough. We're contesting the legislation because, as I said, I think it is entrenched racism. Uh, we, we uh, myself and co-leaders, 
we lodged a uh, United Nations complaint back in September, I think it was, and in view of that and the overwhelming condemnation of lack of heritage protection in WA by Aboriginal groups and to see the Parliament of Western Australia introducing, or the Government of Western Australia, and McGowan and co introduced the bill and looking to push it through before the end of the year to become law, I think is racism in our face. So I call out uh, the state government to debunk that. There's been so much consultation with so many different groups uh, across the state. We know and understand that not all Aboriginal people are going to have the same opinion, but at the very heart of this this bill, the very thing that Aboriginal people were asking for isn't there. Well, it's interesting you say consultation. There's a lot of uh, thinking here in WA and certainly around Australia that consultation does not mean consent. The state government and their spin doctors, uh, the spin that comes out of government about consultation, widespread consultation, may have occurred. It may not have. I don't actually know the sums. I wasn't present. But here we have according to all of my networks in Western Australia, we've been around since 2014, and prior to that, there is still, seems to me, appears to me, to be an overwhelming majority of Aboriginal Australians who contest current uh, heritage legislation, not only in WA, but across the country. Now, why does this come around again? Is it because the governments are doing the right thing? Now, someone's obviously not doing the right thing, uh, we believe it's the government and... Jugan Gorge ignited worldwide condemnation of, of what was going on in Australia. I mean, a, a couple of uh, CEOs lost their jobs, but uh, again, there was significant warning there of what happened at Jugan to make sure, presumably, in this new bill, that uh, not only this couldn't occur again, which they're actually saying is part of the bill, but the consent of Aboriginal people still isn't acknowledged. So at the end of the day, the minister will still have the final decision, not traditional owners. Well, that's probably the main sticking point for me. And from what I've seen of the new bill, and we we have our uh, our, our people still analysing it to uh, you know, break it down into, into layman's terms so everybody understands there's a lot of technical jargon and, uh, and goodwill uh, you know, on the on, on the shop front, but when we delve deeper, we'll we'll get to the crux of it all. The main sticking point is that the the minister, the state minister in Western Australia, has final say after the various committees and uh, uh, appraisals and uh, advices on whether a Aboriginal cultural heritage site can be destroyed or not. Now, these uh, this heritage legislation is written by non-Indigenous public servants sitting back in some office somewhere who have no cultural authority and telling Aboriginal people or dictating the fate of significant Aboriginal cultural heritage, which is at the core of our being. And, uh, you know, we've seen the destruction of that dispossession. So it's ongoing racism as far as I'm concerned. The Aboriginal Heritage Action Alliance, what do they see as the best way forward and what should have been in this bill? I think it was pretty well spelled out in the Jukin Inquiry. What I can say is that from our research, the Northern Territory cultural heritage legislation, we believe, is the best practice model currently in the country. The Jukin Inquiry 
detail and made note of that. One of our hard goals is to co-design heritage legislation in WA. So if we could get around to doing that, we would certainly draw on the legislation in the Northern Territory and uh, how that is and take components out of that to put into West Australian legislation. And aha, we would like to think that we could be supportive of uh, other states and territories with their respective legislation with an ultimate goal to having a uh, federal heritage legislation. If you had the Premier in front of you right now, what would you be saying to him? I'd let him know that he's missed out on an opportunity and to stop pandering to the resource sector, to change it up and uh, to show some fortitude. The State Minister certainly not welcome in my part of the world and uh, I don't think there's too many Aboriginal people, certainly in Western Australia, who support the state government. The only two people I, I know, I'm aware of is a, uh, an Aboriginal public servant and the former state minister, Ben Wyatt, who left the state last year and is now an executive with Big Mining, with Rio and Woodside. Unbelievable. So um, they're good enough indicators for me, Paul. The Premier, uh, the honeymoon's well and truly over and Western Australia for him. That was uh, Clayton Lewis speaking with Karma's Paul Wiles. Uh, the chair of the National Native Title Council, Nyalia Man Kato Muir, says the draft Aboriginal Cultural Heritage Bill continues to give the Aboriginal Affairs Minister more power than traditional owners. Mr Muir says the UN expert mechanism on the rights of Indigenous peoples has been told that the Australian government needs to do more to protect cultural heritage. And he's talking here with Karma's Philippe Perez. Cato, you and a number of traditional owners from West Australia have lodged a request to a UN committee on the elimination of race discrimination to push for an intervention regarding this bill. Why did you take this step and do you think that any meaningful action can actually come from it? Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination are meeting this week in Geneva. We do know that they have received our letter of complaint and may well be considering it as we speak. Basically, what we're saying is that all laws in Australia need to meet human rights as a basic principle. There's no negotiation or fudging of that. And here we have a state government seeking to introduce laws that do not reflect uh, human rights standards. These laws, just remember, do not even meet the standard requested or recommended by the Jukan Senate inquiry. So they don't even meet the idea of a national standard. So there's a lot of work to be done. The National Native Title Council and other peak Aboriginal organisations have been invited to participate in uh, co-design. We're talking about co-designing the new federal legislation. So essentially, whatever happens at the West Australian level may be redundant if the federal government introduces legislation that aligns with the Jukan inquiry recommendation, adequate human rights standards, and set a national framework. So it may well be that the state of Western Australia will have to go back to the drawing board in the not-too-distant future in terms of how their legislation is set up and implemented. Just to the mining sector itself, the Australiasian Centre for Corporate Responsibility, along with the National Native Title Council, as well as the WA Aboriginal Health Alliance, co-filed a shareholding resolution to the Fortescue Metals Group, demonstrating a message of support to improve this bill that's being introduced. What's your insight from the mining industry as to whether they want TOs to have a final say on what happens on their land? Are the sector 
open talking to them? There's two fundamental issues, ideas at play here. On the one hand, a lot of minerals extraction is now targeting the new green economy. The green economies, and especially in Europe and places like that, they're identifying the basic environmental, social and governance requirements of entering into that market. So that sort of high level through to the financiers who invest capital in new businesses, they're starting to have expectations around ESG requirements. And the government got its head in the sand on this matter. And what we're seeing is the mining companies seem to be playing both sides. On the one hand, they want business as usual in substandard human rights levels. But at the other hand, they are very mindful that the social licence to operate as it reflects on Aboriginal cultural heritage this year is the number two risk for corporate social licence to operate in Australia. So that's very high in the risk matrix and they have not been strong enough in addressing this. And this is where FMG shareholders' resolution, I think it equates to about 23% of the um, non-forest shareholdings of FMG are basically saying we expect our company, our investment, to be responsive to the Aboriginal heritage concerns because they are concerned about the social licence to operate. Take away the politicians for a bit. Do you think the Jukin Gorge incident showed the mining industry should also take a lead in this uh, in terms of the legislation uh, or should they maybe just uh, forge on to have good relationships with Aboriginal people without or government interference? Absolutely. It was a wake-up. 23% of a, a vote for any company, what that represents is that if you get that kind of vote two years in a row, then you can remove the board. So, you know, this is not something that they need to be taken lightly. This is quite serious about uh, striking to the governor of these corporations and the deployment of, the, of capital as it has impacts on Aboriginal traditional owners. So the environment has changed. It's not the days of uh, doing human rights abuses in the dark, in the quiet, away from public eye. Today, if you overstep that line, if you overstep that mark, it can be immediately made public to the world. And what we're finding with the way in which the state government is designing this legislation is to reduce the minimum standards to make it easier for companies to do bad things within existing laws. That was the chair of the National Native Title Council, Nyalia Man, Kato Muir, speaking with Karma's Philippe Perez. You're tuning into Strong Voices this uh, Friday afternoon. We're going to head to a quick break, and when we come back, we'll be hearing about the uh, Miracle Babies Foundation. Hey, Mob, this is Patrick Johnson, and you're listening to Strong Voices. Be deadly and stay deadly. Well, a premature birth can have a profound impact on the whole family unit, but with parental leave policies omitting leave for preterm babies, the struggle faced by some parents is even more. Research conducted by Miracle Babies Foundation reveals that 8 out of 10 families with premature babies experience additional financial impacts on their families. Karma's Jenny Hubert is talking here with Kylie Purcell, co-founder of Miracle Babies, co-founder of the Miracle Babies Foundation. 
Miracle Babies, we support premature and sick newborns, provide peer support through hospitals. We've got a 24-hour support line and um, and resources and community groups. So a lot of parents, we all feel myself included going through it, really isolated, alone, um, a lot of fear and guilt. So, you know, coming together and having a connection and a support network is really important. World Prematurity Day on the 17th of November, so definitely want to start the conversation around how we can better support these families with some more financial support uh, during their baby's hospital stay. And, and we're asking to start the conversation with the federal government around the paid parental leave legislation and looking at some form of extended special leave for these families so that when they go home, they've actually still got the same amount of time with their baby as if um, Bub was born full term instead of already using that time up while the baby is in hospital. Is that all about Aussie Workplace encouraged to uh, reassess parental policies and all that? Yeah, definitely. So we'd love to be able to support any workplaces who wanted to implement any change and can look at how they can better support and definitely ask families and businesses to um, to jump on our website and there's a form on there that you can fill out and let us know your thoughts and your experiences around how some form of extra special leave would definitely support these families You know, so much more through the government paid parental leave legislation so you can jump online to miraclebabies.org.au and yeah please tell us your story. Kylie, could you tell us a little bit about your foundation and how you started it? We started in 2005. Our founder Melinda Cruz had been through her the premature birth of her son and wanted to be able to stay connected with others. So went to the hospital and um, proposed some sort of um, connection and staying involved. And, yeah, the hospital put a bunch of us together. We became the co-founders and formed Miracle Babies. And from there, it's just really been brought about um, services, programs, um, you know, resources and research as well about the gaps that we've identified as parents having been through the experience ourselves. So we all bought a lot of new and different and unique experiences of what we've been through having our children um, to the table and that's where we've been able to you know provide such great support for families now right across Australia. That's amazing and also do you have a lot of people working for you as well to support Miracle Babies? Yeah, we have a small paid staff team who achieve amazingly with the resources that we have and we also have lots of wonderful volunteers across the country that help us deliver services. So um, as most not-for-profits, always under-resourced and understaffed, but um, we have an amazing team and a community and we do want to keep working with everyone to how we can keep improving better, healthier outcomes for these babies and their families that are born premature or sick. Miracle Babies Foundation, that's right across Australia for remote communities as well? Yes, definitely, and we realise that extra layer of stress and challenges for, for families, you know, in regional or remote areas. I mean, a lot of the time, if a baby's born extreme prem or needs a higher level of care, they'll have to be transferred, you know, to one of the tertiary hospitals, and there's only 23 across Australia, so... So there's that extra added financial burden of, you know, travel, accommodation, takeaway meals, you know, it could be childcare or parking. So these challenges for regional and remote families can be even tougher. And on top of that, they're going through the trauma of having a premature baby that might be fighting for their life. So if we can help those families by taking away a little bit of that extra pressure, then, you know, it's something as a community and a society that we should, you know, really look at and see how we can do that. Would you like to say anything to our listeners out there on Karma Radio? 
if you're going through it or you know someone who's going through it, please let them know about us. We have a 24-hour support line. So that's for anywhere you live in Australia um, and for extended family and friends. Please call, you know, that connection and peer support from someone who has been through it and understands what you're going through, you know, is vitally important for yourself and your mental health and your parental confidence. So please reach out. No one has to go through it alone. And all the details and information are at miraclebabies.org.au. And as I mentioned earlier, please share your story about about how, you know, some extra specialised leave on the paid parental leave government legislation would help or impact your family or someone in your situation. And let's work together to see change. That was Kylie Purcell, co-founder of Miracle Babies Foundation, speaking with Karma's Jenny Hubert. We're going to head to a quick break on Strong Voices and we'll be right back soon. Hey, you fellas. This is Gail Mabe. You're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio, 8kin FM. A coalition of organisations with a goal to bring clean energy to remote communities has been launched in Alice Springs this week. The First Nations Clean Energy Network will look to work with with the renewables industry to provide cheap power while also prioritising the input of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples into projects. Philippe Prez begins his report with a key indicator, initiator, sorry, of the network and executive director of Aboriginal-led company Original Power, Karina Nolan. We're here to launch the First Nations Clean Energy Network, which is a collaboration of our communities, community organisations and land councils and others, and backed in by industry and government. And it's really about making sure that this clean energy revolution, which we absolutely need to deal with climate change, um, has our people front and centre. There's been an old bushlight system that's supported many of our communities in the top end for a long time, but we would say not enough has been done. Actually, we want to see all of our communities have energy security, which is really meeting basic energy needs, and we know it can be done with clean, affordable power. Ms Nolan says there are big aims for the network, and a lot of work on many fronts is needed to ensure the renewable sector work hand-in-hand with First Nations people. She also says it's an opportunity to have the industry not repeat the mistakes of the mining and resources sector and look to protect sacred sites for any future major projects. So the network has three pillars. Um, Community pillar, which is really about making sure our communities can have that energy security and also be project ready for when those large-scale developments come, but also make sure we have First Nations businesses in the mix. The second is really about policy, making sure there's national framework to ensure that we are absolutely part of this revolution and this transition to clean energy. And the third one is working really closely with industry because we know we have to scale up clean energy fast in order to meet our climate targets. But what we want to see is that scale done at pace and done justly to make sure that we don't repeat the mistakes of the mining industry in the past and ensure, again, that our mob are front and centre. Also at the launch was Leslie Schultz, a Nyaju traditional owner and chair of the Nyaju Conservation Aboriginal Corporation. He says he wants First Nations people to take a lead in the resources sector and determine safe power options for communities. Power in communities is atrocious. It blows out all the time and food's lost and people are suffering in the heat while the power's needing to come back. It's, that's one huge area we'd like to see fixed through this process of renewable energy. But there's also economics opportunity too. Um, we don't want to be on the back seat on this one. We want to be front, centre and leading to this huge 
influx of um, companies that's coming to Australia, and we need government to put us within that policy um, early. He says many organisations are looking to engage in the process of boosting renewables. However, many wide-ranging institutions still need to get on board for the transition to clean energy. Land councils are one spoke in the wheel. We've got a lot of people that are not engaged with land councils. But we're also engaging with um, Australian community, you know, our Indigenous community, nations, also the churches, the unions, the um, universities. You're all very important in this process to help the First Nations of this country to rise and walk forward um, together. Norman Frank Jupurula, a senior Waramangu traditional owner from Tennant Creek, attended the forum in Alice Springs as well. He's worked with Original Power on a pilot program to integrate rooftop solar with prepayment meters in town camps in his community. He says town camps have relied on prepaid dirty power for too long, which can be expensive in the summertime when trying to keep houses cool. Well, it's very important. It's cheaper and then... I don't need to have to put more um, put more money in my meter because I got a prepaid meter in there at the moment. But once I get the solar hooked on and once it gets switched on, it'll be better for me and probably cheaper. And how long did it take for you to get something like that installed in your house? Well, before that, well, I'll live that house now more than five years but but um but at the time i i, I was living on that prepaid but uh, after the prepaid now I, I got a solo set up on my roof a system like uh this couple of panels and a, and a system coming down and and a, and a what i call that thing wi-fi connection that so they can get a reading of it see how much i'm using how much energy i'm using from the sun and plus how much do i have to pay with the meter and how much power i'm using the house they they i think they read that from down or here from alice springs mr Druparula says there's been good interest from his surrounding neighbors in solar power as well but the very long wait from power companies and government bodies to approve installations can also be discouraging. He urged those bodies to fasten up their processes and be less bureaucratic. Well, I'm just trying to experience, experience, experience it for for rest of my people right through the Territory because I'm one of the first Aboriginal person in the Northern Territory and in, in the CLAs right through the Territory, very, very first to have one set up in, in, in on my roof in Tennant Creek and right through the Territory because just that's just a trial for the rest of my people around the Barclay anyway. And are you finding other people in the Barclay keen to take up renewables and solar on their homes? Yeah, and even my neighbours already talking about it and saying, I wish I had one of them and had you got yours and I said I just got that through an organisation from from people from Darwin who do solo. But you're just obviously waiting for it to be turned on from power and water as well. That's something that you think is just been a bit of a uh, stumbling block? Well, yeah, well, I went through a few barriers to get that solo up there and to be put on and to, to be 
now just to be switched on. Now I'm getting through the last barrier. I had to put up a bit of fight and got a, you know, got a, got a hit under the chin from the government and a lot of few things and a lot of barriers. Now this last thing just with power and water now. Yulamu resident David McCormack is also hoping for a similar scheme for his remote community. And while he's at the beginning of his process, waiting for his panels to come in, he says there is a definite appetite in his community for solar power. I just want to know about, because they came in from all over the state, I just want to know more about them, what, what's going on. And I need to get a, ideas of what they do. Yeah, it's important for me because for my people, some of the people have used the key card, I mean the, the power card. I think the solar power is more easier for people like the medicals, the old people. They need that because the power card is more expensive going there and there. What has happened in Ulamu already to try and get that in there or are you hoping to have that happen in the future? In the future, because we got um, the water problem, people, but the water panels, we got it in Ulamu. But I think it's really good to know about the solos, what's going to happen in the future, especially for my generation. That was Yulamu resident David McCormack finishing off that report by Karma's Philippe Perez. You're tuning into Strong Voices. We're going to go to a quick break now and then we'll have a bit of a wrap-up of some of the news stories from throughout the week, as well as, uh, of course, looking at the COVID situation here in the Territory. Strong Voices. Yes, well, it's that time once again here on Strong Voices where we look at some of the news stories from throughout the week. I'm joined in the studio by Karma's Philippe Perez. Good afternoon, Philippe. Where to, Carl? Thanks for having me. Good to have you on. And of course, as per usual, very busy times here in the Territory, very uh, hectic times with the COVID-19 situation that we've been seeing at the moment. I'm sure a lot of Territorians have been pretty eager as each of those you know, press conferences roll around each day. What's the latest that's been happening and that's come out of today, Philippe? So this morning, the Northern Territory recorded two locally acquired COVID-19 cases, which brings the cluster as it stands as 25. Although I do notice that the coronavirus.nt.gov.au website says there's 24 active cases in the Northern Territory. So I'm not exactly too sure if that's just been recently updated uh, to say that there's been a false positive or not. Um So today there were two cases, one in a 33-year-old man. Uh, He was a health worker who is um, uh, an Indigenous man and a 59-year-old Indigenous woman as well. So, um, but uh, there's been some uh, kind of, I don't know, it's probably been a lot of uh, quick information coming out in very short amount of time. This morning we uh, Mr. Gunner said that the 33-year-old male health worker was not Indigenous, but his office have now confirmed that he is actually an Aboriginal man. So a lot of this has come through very quickly, and there's been a few other things where yesterday, uh, or not yesterday, the day before, we saw six cases being announced, but then that was rectified to have eight cases. Um, and obviously, you know, as the situation comes through, uh, and dealing with people living in remote communities, it can be a lot uh, to kind of deal with at any given time. So 
Yeah, there's a lot of information coming through. Uh, the man is a close contact of some existing cases, but the woman uh, was not a yeah. close contact. Um, uh, and as of this morning, interv- interviews with that woman are currently underway. And just uh, I understand in terms of the man, correct me if I'm wrong, he's also been um, flown to the hospital there in Darwin as well, yes, in, in terms of some of his uh, pre-existing health. That's right. Yeah, the man today, announced today, is fully vaccinated and he's being transported to the Royal Darwin Hospital. Um, or if he's not there already, he, he's, he's uh, on his way there. Uh, and the vaccination status of the woman is not known. Okay. At the moment. So at the moment, it, it stands as only two people, I think, currently in the Royal Darwin Hospital? Correct, yeah. yeah. So people maybe rem- remember that a couple of days ago, there was a woman in her 60s who was sent to the Darwin Hospital as a precaution. Uh, the Deputy Chief Health Officer, Dr. Charles Payne, this morning gave a bit of an update on her, um, as said that she's currently stable, but she's at a a moderate level of sickness at the moment. Uh, She's not gotten to a serious stage, um, and basically she's currently being monitored right at this moment. Uh, Another thing, of course, that's been of concern to people since sort of the the timeline, since this has been confirmed to be the uh, case that we saw earlier, the, you know, how we originally had it as cluster one and cluster two, we've, of course, uh, have them as one cluster now, I understand. Uh, A concern, obviously, then, is that timeline in terms of travel. What's sort of been revealed in terms of concerns for other communities, particularly, you know, with the waterways testing and stuff like that as well? Well, a lot has been uh, revealed lately, so I will try and make this as simple as possible. So yes, you are right. It's actually been confirmed that both this cluster of cases, uh, which is in predominantly Aboriginal people, and cases that uh, uh, occurred earlier this month, which was stemmed from that 21-year-old woman had travelled in from Cairns, they are linked now. Genomic sequencing has confirmed that. Um, there's been some concern about the gap uh, between the cases, the last case in that first cluster and the cases in this second cluster are about nine days. So authorities are worried that certainly someone has been in the community who either is asymptomatic to COVID or has not tested and is not wanting to get tested or, or has has uh, mild symptoms and thinking it's a cold um, in, in Catherine. Uh, at the present moment, um, uh, there have been some contacts that are I- in other areas outside of Catherine. Uh, there are three co- contacts who are in Yundamu at the moment, and so resources have been f- uh, sent over there to get that community uh, vaccinated as well as tested. Um, and uh, at the present moment, we don't know of any cases in that community. There's been one contact who is in Tennant Creek as well, and uh, he's uh, currently helping health authorities too. Uh, there's also been wastewater results uh, come back uh, f- to the Territory Government. All areas outside Catherine and Howard Springs came back negative okay. in the wastewater results. Um, and that includes Borroloola. So there had been a lot of talk about whether or not Borroloola should be closed uh, or sh- locked locked out or locked down um, due to the, its proximity to Robinson River, which is the community that's involved in this uh, in this uh, second cluster. So, um, and at the present moment, 
um, if I got this correctly, if I've got my figures correctly, there's still only five cases that have been identified in people living in Robertson River in the Roper Gulf region. So um, Borolula at the present moment seems to be not in danger at the moment, but the community, um, according to the press conference this morning, has been very compliant and a lot of people are taking care and authorities are heading out to that community to make sure that there's support available um, and testing results are, uh, testing is available to anyone who might be symptomatic in that area. Okay, so are they only testing people there if they are symptomatic or if it's sort of travelled around at the moment, not the community as a whole, do we know? I, I'm not exactly too sure about Borolura in itself. Um, yeah. I would think that they'd probably love to have people to, who have symptomatic to just come forward and get tested. Yeah. Um, so I think that's just a given. Um, they have uh, The health authorities have uh, been on a quest to test pretty much everybody in the Robinson River community, and I think it's around about 330-ish people. There is a high young population in Robinson River, though, and um, one of the problems with that at the moment is that we don't have an approved vaccine for children under the age of 12, and so there are a lot of young people who are... uh, need protection, essentially, um, and there's not an, a, a, an ability to try and get... Well, there's not... Uh, the the vaccine is not available to them. Um, but in saying that, uh, again, at the press conference this morning, um, Michael Garner did uh, indicate that he hopes pretty much all eligible adults in Robinson River will be vaccinated as well um, by either this afternoon or throughout the weekend. And last time when we were talking about, um, you know, earlier on in this cluster, we, we saw we were talking about some of the upticks that we've seen, not just in testing, but also in vaccination rates. Do we know if we've seen people going forward a bit more to get their COVID-19 vaccines? Well, there have been reports in media that um, the Aboriginal controlled health organisations in Northern, the Northern Territory have seen a high uptake of vaccines in communities and AMSANT um, have, as of, uh, I'm not exactly too sure if they've said in data to the uh, federal government to update their details um, on who has been vaccinated in the past week, but it's anticipated that we're going to see a a very big spike in vaccinations in remote communities. Um, Where they may be, we don't know yet, but um, it it goes to that kind of issue of data and uh, the Northern Territory not being able to get data from Archos um, and whether or not um, the, uh, the, the, the types of data that we were seeing with the Northern Territory uh, seeing jabs in arms as the basis for their data and the federal data seeing Medicare details as the basis for their data. So there's a lot of factors in all this, but... Um, I did hear John Patterson speak to media earlier this morning uh, saying that he's very confident that there is going to be uh, a lot of people who are going to book for a vaccine or if they haven't already gotten their first vaccine shot this in the past week. Okay. I should also mention, we talked about wastewater as well. Um, uh, when I talked about um, wastewaters outside of Catherine, there hasn't been any... St- positive samples that popped up, but there has been a positive wastewater sample found in the Binjari Aboriginal community, which is a community just just outside Catherine um, off the Stewart Highway. It's bound about home to 200 residents. So 
uh, authorities are heading out there as well, uh, much like what they're doing to Yundamu and Tennant Creek to ensure people over there are uh, either vaccinated or tested as well in the upcoming days. Okay. So in terms of the next steps, is it just a matter of, you know, waiting to see in terms of what we get from the test results in those sort of areas and, and just across, I guess, Tennant and Yundamu? Do you think those sort of the main key points that we're keeping an eye on moving forward? Uh, pretty much. I mean, Michael Gunnar did say that there was um, an OK feeling about what has ha- occurred both yesterday and today. Uh, we did see those, uh, well, the, the nine cases on Tuesday is the most locally acquired COVID transmission that we've seen in the Northern Territory. Uh, and on Wednesday, the eight cases kind of caused, like raised the stakes a bit more in terms of the concern. But obviously, the last two days, we've seen some kind of uh, of a relaxed mood. Um, however, uh, Michael Gunnar says that there is still a real possibility of disaster in this cluster. And so um, uh, there was a specific uh, quote that Michael Gunnar did say that um, if more tests come in and there's a significant amount of positive cases that have been found, it could stem to worse fears, um, particularly in Catherine and Roper Gulf region. Um, so there, there is still a sense of caution, uh, still a sense of people um, uh, just being uh, a bit wary of the situation up in Catherine. Uh, but there's been around about 1,000 tests um, in Darwin yesterday as well, which also gives a sense that a lot of people have visited Catherine recently as well. So there's still that concern about this virus having spread throughout other areas of the Territory. We talked about Yundamu and Tennant Creek too. At the present moment as it stands, we, we just need to see what effect those contacts have had on those communities, if, if transmission has occurred, then, well, we might see some more serious restrictions, uh, not only for probably those communities, but possibly around the Territory. But that remains to be seen. We'll, we'll probably get a better idea by Monday. But in terms of outside of Catherine and the Robertson River, still the mask mandate up until Monday on 6pm, yes? Yeah. So, yeah, if people don't no, here in Alice Springs, uh, there is pretty much a mask mandate to wear a mask outside, wherever you are, um, and indoors if you are in places where you cannot socially distance. Uh, yeah, and there is anticipation that uh, masks may, the mask mandate may be removed for areas outside of Catherine on Monday, but that remains to be seen considering what we've seen possibly in um Yundamu and Tennant Creek. Uh, I suppose the general sense is that we will have to wait and see. I think Sunday will be probably the most crucial day to see where we're at. And if yeah. we do see a significant uptake of coronavirus cases in the Territory, we may still be living with a mask mandate for a while yet. Although, I suppose in the scheme of things, a mask is probably the least of our worries. Mm. Well, on that note, Philippe, thanks so much for joining us, for giving us uh, a wrap-up of the COVID news here in the Territory. No worries, Kyle. Always glad to be here. Well, thank you for tuning in today here on Strong Voices. If you did miss any of the stories or wanted to listen back to the program, you can head to the Karma website at karma.com.au 
we're posting up, uh, of course, the stories and also, of course, a podcast of Strong Voices up there. And again, just in regards to the COVID situation, please make sure you head to coronavirus.nt.gov.au. Uh, they've got a uh, COVID hotline up there as all, well, one 800 490 if you need to give that one a ring. But uh, it's always good to keep an eye on that and see how those updates are going through at the moment, especially in regards to things like exposure sites and any of those sort of uh, restrictions for specific areas. Thanks once again. Have a great weekend.